Okay, so there was these scientists, right? I don't know how. So this is actually kind of not funny because they got a hold of the host. Well, they said they got a hold of a real consecrated, consecrated host. host. And so I don't know how they did it. And I'm sure that, you know, it's going to be bad for them. However, they got it. But anyway, so they did a DNA test on it. This is so great. And they said, look, guys, the DNA isn't uh, body DNA. It's not human flesh. It's bread. It's just bread DNA. So when are you Catholics going to admit that you uh, don't have real Jesus here yet? And I don't know what they expected (laughs) as if we were going to go like, oh, no, (laughs) you mean the DNA? Like, you mean it looks like bread when you look at it under a DNA thing? As if, like, this hasn't been a problem since, like, the beginning. 2,000 years of history gone. Right, (laughs) right. And then 2,000 years ago, it wasn't like, you didn't need a DNA test to go like, hey, you're telling me this is flesh? I don't know. But I've had, yeah. (laughs) It looks kind of like bread Bread. And when I eat other human flesh, (laughs) okay, I know what it tastes like. You can't pull the wool over my eyes. You're listening to 10,000 Places, where a theologian, a philosopher, and a campus minister walk into the room and go 10,000 places. And today, we hopefully are going to find Jesus in right the Eucharist. Where he is. <laughs> yeah. Right where he said he'll be. Right. I'm Justin Aquila, the campus minister. This is Alex Giltner. And Lewis Pearson. This point you made in our opener reminded me of what happens when I cover Aristotle and habituation of, mm-hmm. of new virtues. That... Oh, we're going to be getting into Aristotle today, too. That's very cool, yeah. So, uh, not too subtle foreshadowing. This isn't to discount the great things that we do get from scientific inquiry and research, but when uh, I have someone tell me, well, you know, this research shows, like, the brain paths, and you have this thing that's happening neurochemically when you do this thing over and over, and I think, I mean, five-year-olds know what a habit is. Like, you, you didn't need the neurochemistry oh my gosh. to understand how habits are hard to break once they've begun. <laughs> So, yeah, it's so funny that, so Nietzsche makes this point, and I believe in the gay science, which means the happy science listener. And what he means by that, by gay science or happy science, is all these scientists think they're solving everything, and they are blissfully unaware of how ignorant they seem. And he uses the example of music. He says, so scientists would have you believe they understand music better because they can tell you it's vibrations moving through a gaseous sphere. But they haven't gotten any better at explaining music, why music does what it does to us, why it means something, why people march in a battle to music, why they listen to music, get hyped up, why it makes them cry. All he says, all you've done is better describe music. And so these scientists better describe things all the time, which can be super helpful Mm -hmm. for helping us understand like sicknesses and stuff. There's no bashing of science. I hope. I don't know if we've done a science versus faith episode yet. We, we should. We really should. Mm-hmm. Because, I think this shows what happens when people talk past one another. Right. Right. They think, well, I've really done this. I've explained it. I say, well, you've, you've done a, an alternate form of description. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean what you've done is contradicted a previous form of description. Right. And so there's one basic distinction you made to make when you're thinking about like science and faith, you know, and these types of things is describing what something is as a fact We call this the fact-out-value distinction, describing something that is as a fact, and then describing why it matters. What does it mean? Why should we care? What is its value? And that's a really important distinction. Science can tell you how to split an atom, but it cannot tell you whether or not you should drop an atom bomb. Right. It can only tell you what can be done. It can't tell you whether or not you should do something. Right. That's the field of ethics, of... Right. 
revelation about morality. This is why Jurassic Park's a great movie. There's that great line when they're arguing. It's, it's such a good scene. That whole scene at the lunch table, one of the best filmed impromptu debates in cinema. Like, yeah. it's so well done. That is exactly how a debate will unfold That's uh, It's been a while since I've seen it. So that's when they're in the Jeep and they're about to see the dinosaurs, right? No, it's no. after they've seen the dinosaur okay. and they're at lunch talking yeah, about it. And yeah, the yeah, lawyer yeah. is all like, dude, we're going to make so much right, money. And right, he was right. the one that wasn't so sure. And the scientists who were there to protect him from the lawyer are like, no, something's not right here. And there's this great line, you know, Malcolm, it's uh, Jeff, uh, Gold. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, and so you just, uh, you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you never stopped to think about whether or not you should. should. Yeah. And it's like, boom, I show that in my classes. That's the difference between fact and value. Yeah. But I think we can play on both value and fact here. We'll explain this more in another episode, but here's where it comes down to. So I, I had a Lutheran friend. I don't know him anymore. He's a great guy. He's a recovering alcoholic. We met through AA. You know, we got to talk about the Eucharist. He's a Lutheran, used to be a pastor. I'm Catholic. And he said, now, we don't believe transubstantiation or whatever, but we always have said real presence. And I said, real like what? He says, like, it's the real presence. And I was like, real like it's the real presence. Yeah, real presence. So is it actually the body and blood of Jesus? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's the real presence. I don't know what your distinction here is then. It sounds like you just want to say real without saying the thing you don't want to say because that's what the Catholics say. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we're coming up here to the feast in the Catholic Church, the celebration of the Feast of the Body and Blood of Jesus, often known as Corpus Christi. And, you know, we've seen a lot of the, the studies, and dear listener, you may be one of these people who don't necessarily believe that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. And so we thought we'd unpack that a little bit today. And we use a lot of terms to speak about the Eucharist in our Catholic doctrine. So maybe we can just pick apart a few of them and unfold them. But before we get to that, do you want to tackle it quickly from the scriptural point of view? So where does this doctrine of the Eucharist rooted in the scriptures? Yeah, one of the classical places people look is the Gospel of John chapter 6. Right. And here, Christ is given what's called often the Bread of life discourse. Yeah. So in that chapter, he says, you abide in me and I abide in you. And those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will abide in me. And he says it over and over and over. And a number of followers leave him at that point. And many Catholic apologists who point to John chapter six have gone in at length. But John chapter six is one of those places. And after we have this setup of Christ telling us what abiding looks like, and it's basically consuming his body and his blood, we have it also at the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. Yeah. I always point to Brant Petrie's latest work, the, I think it's the, the biblical Jewish roots of the, of the, the Jewish roots of the, the Eucharist. The Eucharist, yep. Where he just lays out how the New Testament, and maybe Alex, you can speak to this too, that the New Testament really on the Eucharist is fulfilling everything that's been prepared in the Yeah. Old. And in fact, he makes the point, and I think Scott Hahn might've made this point earlier than him in a biblical walk through the mass. But the whole idea is that sacrifice is not complete until it's consumed. Yeah. And that is so clear throughout the entire Old Testament that they have to eat the sacrifice. And it's more than just what the Levites live on, you know? And so the consummation aspect, the consuming aspect of the Eucharist has always been kind of built out of the well, the sacrificial system and the sacrificial logic 
of the Old Testament itself. What the Jews didn't understand in John 6 is different than seems to be what is the misunderstanding here, even though it's the same problem. The problem that both that the Jews have in chapter 6 is how are we going to eat your <laughs> flesh yeah. and drink your blood? Are you crazy? Yeah. Like, that's not how that works. We're not cannibals. And if we eat you, you'll die. And there'll right? be no more of you. And there'll be, yeah, right? There's not enough to go around Jesus of Nazareth, okay? The carpenter's son. Right, right. You, we're not going to eat you. If we understand you rightly, that's crazy talk. Exactly. And, and, and if it's not what we think, we're completely lost. Right. And so then Jesus has a chance to say over and over and over again, by the way, I mean this metaphorically. I mean this spiritually. I mean, I, I don't like him. I'm not going to really eat my body. No. When they push him and say, they actually say, how can we eat your flesh and drink your blood? And he doubles down and says, if you don't, you won't be saved. And so the thing that is kind of behind the logic of John 6 is that, no, you literally have to do this. And Jesus could have, he could have explained himself over and over and over again. And so almost everybody leaves because what he's saying is crazy. And yet the Protestant view of that now is that we should, for the same reason that he can't literally mean let's eat his flesh and drink his blood, he must mean it metaphorically. And so it's the same problem. That's the same reaction of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And it is the right thing to worry about. If the Catholic Church is right about the real presence, our practices surrounding this are the most important thing, one of them that we do. And if we're wrong, we are idolaters. Yeah. It is true. I mean, we call it the source and summit of our faith, the Eucharist. Yeah, that comes from Vatican II. Yeah. What document does it come uh, from? The document of the liturgy. Sacrosanctum. Yeah, can, in Chile. Can. Also, we have other passages. This is my body. This is my blood, which even Luther wrote apparently in beer foam on the table. Is that right? When Zwingli pushed him on it because they – the Lutherans do want to say real presence. Right. And it's sometimes called Constant, consubstantiation. Yeah. And their view is – that another substance appears alongside yeah. the bread and wine substance, right. not but, that the substance actually changes. Which is funny because I do think that's out of Melanchthon and the later scholastic reformation. I don't know if that was Luther's view. I think his was a little bit more, we could say, mystical, but I could be corrected on that. But it's the later reform scholasticism and then the Lutheran scholasticism that really tries to get through these distinctions, and they do end up falling back on Aristotle a bit. Consubstantiation is still using Aristotelian language. Yeah. But then you've also got 1 Corinthians 11, that we are participating in the body and blood of Christ when we receive the Eucharist. It is a participation, a koinonia. And then the church fathers see this is a, a oh, type yeah. that has been fulfilling what the Old Testament sets up for us. Yeah. And many people have written about this through the centuries, that in the desert when Moses has led God's people out of bondage in Egypt, they're given manna from heaven. Mm -hmm. Which uh, is what the Bread of Life discourse is based on. Right. They're given the word that will save them, the commandments from God, and uh, they build an Ark of the Covenant, and church fathers and many people following them see that Jesus is the new word of God, the, the new bread from heaven, Mary being the Ark yeah. that, that houses this fulfillment of the word and the bread that people have been fed on since the time of Moses. Yeah, and so that tabernacle at the head of the altar that is based on the tabernacle where the presence, which they talk about that, the presence, and you see it sometimes in 
in the Old Testament, they'll capitalize the word P there for presence because it's the literal presence of God. And so the tabernacle works this way in our churches, in our actual physical churches, because we believe that Jesus literally is in that tabernacle. It's a ritual womb and a ritual tomb. Right. So like, and if you don't, for anybody who might not know, when the priest consecrates the bread and it becomes the body, there's always left over, some of the hosts left over, and we put it in that tabernacle where it stays until it is finally eventually consumed. Right. Yeah. And even in the early church, there was the custom of taking the Eucharist to the sick. Mm -hmm. Justin and his... The Shuddens. In his, it's his first apology, Justin right? Martyr. Uh, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr in about 120. I want to say 155 AD, but that's... Yeah, yeah. That, no, that's right. He's, that's, he's mid-second century. The, the catechism sure. footnote just came right, like, <laughs> as you said that, Lewis, just like right into my vision. I'm pretty sure it's 155. Yeah, so Justin is giving a defense of the Christian practices to the Roman emperor. He describes almost, at least in form and in structure, what we would call the Mass. And he speaks at the end of how after receiving communion, then this communion is taken out to the sick, to those who couldn't attend the Mass. So early on in the history of the church, the Eucharist is kept in tabernacles, primarily first for the communion for the sick, and then secondarily, this devotion of which the Feast of Corpus Christi is almost the culmination of this devotion to the Eucharist that now becomes a center of prayer, where the church comes and adores right. the Lord in the tabernacle as well as in the Mass. And for our listener, Corpus Christi and the Feast of Corpus Christi, it's not celebrating a city in Texas. <laughs> the words in Latin is... As much the, as Texans would want it to. Right, yes. <laughs> right. And it was probably named after this feast, but, yeah, um, yeah. but I don't know that for sure. But yeah, Corpus Christi is the body of Christ in Latin. So we covered, we talked about the, some of the scriptural roots, the Church Fathers... There's one more scriptural root. Go just ahead. Like, yeah. It's in the nativity, right? When uh, Jesus is put in the manger. And this is a confusion we often have today as Americans. Manger is the feeding trough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Manger is not the stable or the cave, wherever they were staying. So when they put Jesus in a manger, it's because they don't have a crib. So they put him in the manger, right, for the, the French. Oh, the Italians. Manja. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's to eat. So they're putting the baby Jesus into the place where animals come to eat. And so there's this foreshadowing from the very beginning of his life in the nativity, this is food for the world. Dude, that's awesome. I didn't (laughs) know that. Actually, that, when I took French and got the manger, and apparently it's also in Italian, I I mean, they're all romance languages. It helped me remember the manger is the feeding trough because I heard the word in French and it doesn't make sense in English. We don't use that word. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But the practice that we have, you know, one thing that occurred to me, I had a Protestant friend who said, we believe in that too, the real presence or... He was willing to say transubstantiation, unlike your friend. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And I thought, and we're close friends here, and I said, I don't think that you do. For him, it was an intellectual puzzle to figure out, like, do we believe this? Is this consistent with the theology I understand from my, my background? My, it was a Reformed Presbyterian background. I pointed out, well, this is why I don't think that you do. Do you genuflect when you come into the presence, entering any kind of church that has the light over the tabernacle that indicates Christ is reposing in the tabernacle. Do you kneel when the words of institution, when it's confected during mass? Do you have rules about the purification of the vessels after mass, right? That doesn't go in the sink because the sink goes to the sewer. Right. Those things go straight into the ground. Mm -hmm. But we have all these rules that make clear, right? Practices build up around belief. If you think this is what it is, this is how you're going to treat it. This is exactly why if you say you believe something 
and someone says, yeah, but you do this and you do this and you do this. Like if practices are confirming of beliefs, belief isn't just a simple statement of an idea in your mind. One acts. And so like, you know, you say like you say you believe that, but you clearly don't because you do X, Y and Z. But they don't see it because they haven't lived it. Right. And so they don't treat the Eucharist like it is literally Jesus. Right. As the cradle Catholic that revived this memory, actually, I was probably about 10 years old. And I was an altar server, and there was a priest. He wasn't able to say Mass. He, he must have been as well into his 80s, if not older. But he would come out and assist with the distribution of communion, and he would hear confessions. But he wasn't a concentration camp survivor, but he had been in, like, in a work camp during World War II. He was French, Father Marcel. And I remember him making ever so slight bend of the knee, because that's all his body would allow him to do. And the Eucharist, and I remember thinking as a 10-year-old, the witness of this man and the expression of his body, not just what he proclaimed, but in the expression of his body, there must be something true about this. So that was striking. Yeah, and I think it even explains certain things. I think it could be helpful to help non-Catholics understand us and why we do the things we do. Because I remember when I went through the Triduum with Mary Beth the first time. Mm -hmm. It was only a few years ago. Yeah. And after Good Friday, I still was kneeling when I got out of the pew. Like, this is how, and she right. goes like, oh, you, you can kneel, but like, we usually just bow to the altar. And I was like, yeah, but why? She's like, well, Jesus is in the tabernacle. And I was like, duh, <laughs> right? Like, why am I kneeling? Jesus isn't here. He's not in the tabernacle. Now, of course, he is here by via his omnipresence and divine nature. Yes. But like, he physically isn't here. And so like, when we're kneeling before we get in the pew or when we come to the church or whatever, it's not because, like, that's what you do. Even though that's how I understood it, I just thought nobody had ever explained to me why I was kneeling before I got into the pew. Uh-huh. In that moment, it's like, oh, I'm doing this because Jesus is there. And when Jesus is not there, I don't kneel to nothing, right? Right. Yeah. By the way, folks, if you don't know this, right knee goes to Jesus, <laughs> left knee goes to everyone else, including kings and queens. Yeah, yep. Pope. And the Pope. And when you propose. And when you propose. So I I, I proposed to my wife in a in a chapel. uh, chapel, And I had a whole like debate with myself. Do I do I do do, because like Jesus is here, so I have the right knee, left knee. And I finally decided left knee to her, but Jesus is right there. Hashtag Catholic problems. (laughs) (laughs) We did it in Adoration Chapel. So it was easy because we were both kneeling next to Uh, each other. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the things, too, as we wrap up this conversation to think about, I think we all share a common love and devotion of St. Francis. And Lewis, your earlier mention of the manger reminded me of St. Francis because Francis saw the great poverty and humility of God in his presence in the incarnation as an infant, but also in the Eucharist. So that Mm -hmm. Jesus makes himself, what kind of God, all-powerful, omnipresent, omnipotent God, makes himself present to us in this most accessible way, the most unthreatening of ways in the bread and wine and in the infancy of Jesus. Yeah. More recently in my Eucharistic spirituality, I often think of Francis and his observation about the poverty of God. Justin, it's like you read my mind that you knew this is going to be a two-parter and we're, <laughs> we're ending on a note that we're going to be beginning the second part of this topic. That is the different modes of presence that Jesus has in the world, Yeah. right? in his body, in his mystical body, in the Eucharist, all the different ways that Christ comes to us. Yeah, so maybe we could just close on a prayer from St. Francis that he wrote about the Eucharist. It's really cool. 
I've always wanted to like name something like a book or or something, the whole world tremble. <laughs> He's talking about the Eucharist. And he says, let everyone be struck with fear. Let the whole world tremble and the heavens exult when Christ, son of the living God, is present on the altar in the hands of a priest. O wonderful loftiness and stupendous dignity. O sublime humility, O humble sublimity. The Lord of the universe, God and the Son of God, so humbles himself that he hides himself for our salvation under an ordinary piece of bread. See the humility of God, brothers, and pour out your hearts before him. Humble yourselves that you may be exalted by him. Hold back nothing of yourselves for yourselves, that he who gives himself totally to you may receive you totally. Oh, amen, amen, amen. Uh, Listeners, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you in the next part where we actually break down the metaphysics of transubstantiation in the Eucharist. But until then, we're signing off. I'm Alex Giltner. I'm Justin Aquila. I'm Lewis Pearson. And this has been 10,000 Places. Go see Christ in all them places, but especially the Eucharist. Amen. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.